continue to look at what the church is, and so please take, um, if you haven't done so, is to go back and watch the last two life lessons, especially if you're jumping into the series today. Um, it sort of keeps it all together in the same thought. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn it on to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 24 to 26, and we're starting part way. and as Paul is writing to the church, and he says this, uh, the church in Corinth, that is, he says, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, I don't know about you, but it's absolutely fascinating when you're using a hammer and you're not too terribly proficient at swinging it, you usually end up hitting a body part, which is either a thumb or a finger. And when you do that in full force, you don't stand there and say, wow, that hurt. I would suspect by looking over some of you, some of you would do that Christian pseudo cussing dance shuffle. You know what I'm talking about? Words like, oh, freaking, freaking, shoot, oh, nuts, rats, crying out loud, rats, crap, crapola, holy moly, fiddle faddle, good gravy, good grief. Is he swearing? <laughs> H-E double hockey sick, son of a Baptist, jumping Jehoshaphat, you've heard it all, right? Dang, dang it, geez, dad gummit, jeepers, geez louise, Bob Saget, <laughs> right, right? Son of a biscuit, shut the front door, like, we have it all, right? Just to name a few. Now, if that's any of you, repentance could be made at the crosses at the end of the gathering. That's between you and God. But back to hitting your thumb with a hammer. Your whole body gyrates in the response, right, to that tiny pain on your hand. And again, do any of you know of this freakish behavior of which I speak? You know, you see the psychotic behavior taking place in other people. But, you know, why is it, when you ask the question, why is it that a tiny stone in your shoe can mess up your entire body? And you can try to ignore the stone. I don't know about you. You try to ignore you give it the shake, right? You're walking, you just give it the shake, and you ignore the stone, but you quickly realize it messes up the way that you walk. It messes up your gait, and you actually have to stop to take it out. Or what happens to a toothache? You know, that, that little white thing in your mouth, when it's irritated, your tongue is on it all the time. Even your fingers, you're, you're going into your mouth. And yet, that little white thing in your mouth can keep your whole body lying awake at night. No sleep. It will prevent you from having any rest. Or if you can cut, or pinch a, cut your hand or pinch a nerve in your back, right? Uh, your whole body's in pain. Right down to the place where you roll your ankle when you're out for a simple walk last night. Not saying that it happened to me or anything else like that, but I'm just being honest before you. But the fact of the matter is, the writer of the Corinthians, Paul, says, when one part suffers, the whole part suffers. So today, let's talk about church hurt. Have you ever found yourself dreading Sunday mornings when you know you should feel joy? Have you ever felt that the church auditorium has been laced with landmines? Perhaps the nastiness or neglect of fellow Christians has made you feel like Christ has forgotten you. And if so, then you're familiar with church hurt. And so let me begin this morning by prefacing this. One guarantee of committing to any local church is that sooner or later you'll get hurt. Now, whether it involves low-level disappointments, whether it's a fallout from a scandal or ravages from an internal civil war of some sort, the local church, hear me clearly, the local church will always leave us aching for something better. Relatively minor church hurts can leave us without a burnt-out feeling, while the more serious wounds can leave us soul-scarred, physically sick, at the thought of even walking through the doors. And far from being an oculus, the pain can open us up at this time now to various temptations. And so what do we do? We end up sitting in judgment over the church and its struggles. Or we refuse to participate in any church ministries that are not up to par. 
or to tear down the church with our words or even withdrawing from the church altogether. Now, many of us, myself included, have been hurt by the very people closest to us, the people that we have welcomed into community, the ones where we shared worship with and prayer with and communion with. And if we're actually honest, we, we have likely been not just the victim, but party to inflicting the pain on occasion as well. Because when we are hurt by the church, sadly, we often bite back. And so today, I don't want to minimize anybody's pain. That's, that's not my purpose today. And it's not my intention to pretend it isn't real, whatever, if you're here and this is what you're going through. But there are two competing realities that can simultaneously be true. We can be hurt by the church, but we can't quit the church. That's simply not an option as a Christ follower. Now, if we want to battle these temptations instead of growing disillusioned, we need to remember the truth about the church and, and who it is made of and who's the head. And that's why I say you've got to go back to the last two weeks, listen to the life lessons. I remember when I received my call to ministry, I couldn't wait, actually, to spend the rest of my life serving Jesus, being a missionary. I knew I was going to be called to be a youth pastor. And so off I went to Bible college. Now, now again, it's funny because over the years we have a few people who, from here who remember me in Saskatoon at Bible college, and I have to admit, on my own, I was a bit of a handful. But there at one point, the president of the Bible college pulled me aside, and this is exactly what he said to me. You'll never make it in ministry. That was an ouch moment. I remember coming back to Winnipeg. I was going to marry my lovely bride. I had to finish my studies, and so in that, and part of it, it was uh, the things I had to do to finish my studies was to intern at a church for free. All right? Uh, slave labor, basically, is what they call it, but... It was internship. So I did what any normal person would have done, and I went to the associate pastor of my church at that time, my home church, and I asked to serve. I said, look, I'm studying, I'm doing my master's, and I'm told I need to intern, I'm supposed to do it for free, and uh, can, can we do the program here? And he looked at me, and he says, look, I need to go talk to the senior pastor. And of course, I'm desperate, because I, I need to get my education. Of course, it's my home church, it's not a big problem. And the, the news comes back to me, and the answer was no. No reason. Just no. And I was crushed. And actually, as I was writing this, this stuff out, I think that in both those situations, I had emotions of hurt, I've had emotions of rejection, anger, confusion. And to this day, when I think about what the president of the college said, and even what the associate pastor said to me, it brings up those feelings. It was really interesting. And here I am, I'm 57 years old. I've experienced more hurt in the church than I even care to talk about. Sam Chand in his book, Leadership Pain, explains that in, in the olden days, you think about this, in the olden days, like maybe 10 years ago, in the olden days, pastors only had to worry about preaching and taking care of the flock. Now they need to run, run a much more complex organization involving a building and finances and human resources, community par partnerships, and so much more. These are the things that we were never taught in college or seminary at the time. And all of this multiplies the opportunity to both giving and receiving hurt. I've been hurt by other pastors. I've been hurt by other church leaders. I've been hurt by the average person sitting in the chair. And I can actually say from both sides of the issues, I know that there are those who feel that I have hurt them personally as well. And what I've learned is this, hurt exists in this thing that we call the church, the body, the people. And maybe some of you are here today and you've been hurt by somebody in the church, or maybe somebody in the church has said some very hurtful words to you. 
Maybe someone or somebody has hurt you through gossip or neglect of some sort or backstabbing or unfaithfulness of some type. And I actually believe that most people in the church have been hurt by the church at some point in their lives. We've been disappointed. And the reality is that we don't like to talk about it, but I think that we actually need to. Especially in the world that we're living in right now that is so divided, and it is so divided in Christian circles. Let's state the obvious. It just takes you to be a keyboard warrior to put something online, and you know you're throwing darts. And it takes the other person, the response to answer, and they're throwing darts back. And what is it? It's the body fighting each other. And I think when I say we... when I say hurt by the church, we have to get away from making a blanket statement. Because many times we associate that word church with an institution. And I think that we have to keep reminding ourselves that many times our perceived hurt doesn't derive from an institution. Now, there are some cases that it does, historically speaking, but that's not what I'm talking about today, but rather a person or persons who are part of a body. So what do we do when we experience church hurt? What should our response be? Because I believe that we all know people who have been hurt by the church, and years later, they still even have trouble going to church. And that's a tragedy. Scripture contains many metaphors for the church. It's called a spiritual house in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. It's a radiant bride in Revelation, right? And of course, Paul talks about it here in 1 Corinthians as a human body. But why do we often feel such a contrast, a stark contrast between these images and our own actual experience in an actual church body? Now bear with me while I state the obvious. The church is made up of people. And although Scripture describes many ways in which human beings echo the image of God back to creation, there are at least three ways in which we do not. In other words, we sin, we are finite, and we change. And each of these take a toll on our life together as we try to journey and do life together. We sin, we are finite, and we change. Now, sinful people hurt each other. Put a group of people, diverse ages, backgrounds, convictions, personalities, ethnicities, sin struggles, in a relationship together, and life is going to get messy really quickly. All of us in this room. And none of us are above it. And when it comes to minor church hurts, especially, you know, uh, I would say sometimes adjusting our expectations can be helpful. And I'm talking about minor things. Lower your expectations. What's your thing you always say? Lower expectations? What is it? Yeah, no expectations, no disappointments. We try to live our lives by that. Right? You know, we're all capable of doing damage. We are. And it's unreasonable to expect a church environment to be pain-free. Some people just you off they do and it doesn't matter how hard we try to work together it just doesn't click furthermore Jesus foretold the ominous reality that there's these things called wolves who enter the flock they wreak havoc wolves are in the church they wreak havoc They scatter the sheep. They leave behind collateral damage. We read that in Matthew 7. And I will say this, that God will hold those people accountable. He may not do it right away, but they will be held accountable. People are so finite. God is the only one who's limited in His knowledge and His love, His power and His wisdom. Rather than expecting of others what only God can perfectly provide, we need to trust God to be God and let each of us be human. 
And on the other side of the spectrum, it's helpful to remember that every believer, regardless of their deficiencies, is essential to the body of the Christ. In other words, every person here, if you're identifying as a follower of Jesus, a believer, you are essential to the body. And I think this can help us actually have and function in grace for our church leaders and for each other and remind us of the necessity of our own contribution to the local body, which we talked about last week. Now, because people change over time, churches are dynamic. They're not a static thing. They shouldn't be static. They need to be dynamic. They need to constantly change, especially especially in the culture we live in. But even the best church, even the best church will eventually disappoint somebody or somebody's. And I think, although rightfully we long to be a part of a healthy church body, our ultimate hope is not in how strong our local church is, but in the head of the church himself, right? Jesus is the head. And God's purposes will always prevail as he builds his church his way. And Jesus has an enemy. And just an FYI, it's not the person sitting next to you. You know, Satan has hated God from the beginning, as we have seen. He he wants to destroy, he wants to diminish the church. Because the church is God's chosen instrument, as we read the scriptures, to grow his kingdom. There's a purpose for the church. There's a purpose for us as we gather together. And Satan wants to tear down the church as fast as he as Jesus is trying to build it. And he's not shameful, uh, or he's not above shameful tactics or shock and awe moves either. Again, the titles that Satan has throughout Scripture, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's an accuser, adversary, and even murderer, and all these things are found sometimes within the church. And when it comes to deep wounds the church can inflict, we have to remember who the real enemy is. And behind that raging conflict or the oppressive leader, there's this crafty strategist who plans a ruthless plan that involves consuming God's people or at least trying to render their faith inactive. It's a spiritual battle that we live in. And if you're wondering whether to stay in a church or to leave, remember either way, Satan is actively seeking people to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And so if you're finding yourself in this place and you're, like I said, you feel like you're walking into the landmines or whatever it is, or you're watching and you're, you're trying to ascertain where it is, listen, cling to Jesus, whose death and resurrection told the initial death blow for Satan. It's going to end. Jesus tells us that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. That means we have to be on the move. We are the ones on the move. And we know that Satan was defeated at the cross. And and when Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We read that in Colossians 2.15. So Satan will ultimately hold no power over God's people because when Jesus returns, he will hand over the kingdom kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every enemy of God. It's going to end soon, including, including the demonic powers that rage against God. And even death itself. Jesus is the victor. He will conquer all, and God's people will enjoy him forever in the absence of sin and death and Satan. But we're not there yet. We find ourselves in the middle of a war. And in difficult church situations, staying in faith or going in humility and love may be both valid options, but when it's possible, when you find yourself in a difficult church uh, situation, seeing it through, sticking with it, I believe can be the strongest statement a believer could ever make. Because it's not about the church, but it's about Jesus. Our commitment to to the local church, our commitment to the bride is a statement about the worth of the bridegroom. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says that Jesus died for his bride to make her spotless and splendid basically forever. And Jesus believed the beauty of the church was worth his life, so he laid down his life to purify her. 
And she reflects back to him not her own intrinsic worth, but the worth of the one who was created and called and redeemed her. There is this love relationship that Jesus has with the church. He died for us. We gather together to remember that, to celebrate that. We need each other. You know, ministry hurts as well. You don't often hear it. You hear it when, when us as pastors, we go on other pastor conferences and we talk about our ministry hurts and grief. But ministry hurts as well. And there is grief for, in the church with ministry leaders. As a matter of fact, over the years here at Seoul, a number of former pastors have sat in these chairs. Why? To simply come and heal. Because in ministry, what happens is we face discouragement, we face depression, thoughts of quitting, just about every day, being fired, a whole host of other things that make you want to turn your back on the people of the church in ministry. Are you able to handle that? Oh, it's what you signed up for. Uh, No, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up to make a difference. This is just part of the collateral damage. And so the obvious place for all of us to start today is that imperfect people do imperfect things. Any perfect people here? Just want to know before I get going because then I'll have to change my whole message. Imperfect people do imperfect things. Look at people, you, me, say and do things that are hurtful. People may be ornery, oblivious, or even power-seeking. They may not mean to be hurtful. Or even realize that what they're doing or saying is actually hurting people. They may never be sorry. They may never admit their part in the hurt. And we're surprised when people in the church community hurt other people. But really, honestly, guys, we shouldn't be. It happens. We're still a bunch of sinners. Hence, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. And again, I have to say, like I said earlier, we we can never forget who's behind the hurt. It's not accidental. The evil one is the destroyer, and he's out to kill, steal, and destroy whoever and whatever he can. And so when hurt arises within us, I need to say this. When hurt arises, sometimes we're blinded by our own perspective. Right? Because we're always innocent. And it's it's not easy to step away from our pain. It's not. Again, I don't diminish any of it, but, but we need to put it into perspective in order to move past it. And sometimes it hurts because all we can see is the offense or all that we can see and a reminder of is the offenders. But we also have to manage our own expectations in this whole drama of life. Life is hard. And we know that already. And many times we walk into church expecting it to be heaven on earth, but we get sorely disappointed pretty quick. And somehow it's a little less discouraging when you decide to see these challenges just simply as a normal part of life. Okay, there are people in here that are different than me. There are people in here that rub my foot like it's a stone in there. There are people in here that I just don't gel with. You know what? That's okay. Look how far the toe is from the top of my head. But they still get along. It sounds juvenile and trivial, but it's not. That's exactly what's being said. In the body, we all have something to contribute. We're all part of the one unit. But we don't necessarily have to be working off each other. But sometimes we get stuck and we stay in our pain because we want others to see how hurtful and wrong they were. And I won't say that never happens, but you don't have to wait for your pain to be validated. Jesus sees it. Jesus knows it. And when we believe the lie that nobody understands our pain, 
We run from our community and we cling to our hurt. And if we believe the lie that nobody knows our pain, we actually inadvertently diminish the deity of who Jesus really is. Because basically when we say things like that, he can't be all-knowing and does not understand what we're going through, which is, he does. You, you notice, everything that happens keeps coming back to Jesus. Why? Because he is the head of the church. But when we agree with and we act on the unchangeable truth that Jesus knows all of our hurts and our hang-ups, we elevate him. And we unhinge ourselves from the prison of people-pleasing. When we truly believe that Jesus not just knows about our hurts, but wants to comfort us in them, when we really get to that point in ourselves, we no longer feel the desperate needs for others to affirm. Because I get it from Jesus. We no longer feel the desperate need for others to understand, apologize, or to see our point of view. And that liberty brings the freedom to finally begin to heal. In my phone, in my day timer, in my calendar, I have a reminder that says, stop trying to be understood. Every day, at the end of the day, in my phone, stop trying to be understood. You see, because the way I'm wired, I don't care if you disagree with me or not. I just want you to understand what I'm saying. And I've had to come to the place in my life where I'm constantly reminding myself to stop trying to be understood. You know, I know from years of seeing the underbelly of church life that people don't always come around. And though it's the biblical goal and hope, restoration doesn't always happen. And again, you and I don't have to stay hijacked by others Refusal to reconcile. I often equate, and I've, you've heard me say this before, you know, life is like a, a tennis game, and when, you know, when somebody is you know, serving the ball over the net, you, you are making an attempt. Are they going to return the favor and put the ball back over to you? And if so, well, then it's your turn to push it back over to them. And that's part of life. That's part of maybe apologizing or acknowledging things. But there are sometimes when you put the ball over, there's no return. And we get, our, we get hurt, added hurt. And part of healing is letting Jesus hold the place of priority in our hearts, not the people who hurt us. As I said last week, we all have something to offer. We all have a gift. But what I have to realize is that even though I may have a gifting in one area, my gifting leaves me weak in other areas. For instance, I could be a good teacher. I actually think I'm a good teacher. I mean, it's, it's not a pride thing. It's just an affirmation. I feel I have a gift of teaching. I love to teach. And so I've been said, Jerry, you're a good teacher. But maybe you don't like my administrative skills. Or you like my vision and passion, but you're disappointed that I'm not at your bedside, which should be thankful for some of you, especially a friend of mine after his hernia surgery, and I sat beside his bedside and made him laugh for two hours straight, and then morphine was his friend for quite a long time afterwards. See, the fact of the matter is we all bring our strengths to our ministries as leaders, we all bring our strength to the church. But as leaders, I'll say this, 
because, again, it, we're much more visible. As leaders, we become the focal point of all criticism. And I have to be honest, I try to work harder, I try to do better. I probably wear stress like a badge on my sleeve, but my weaknesses come hand in hand with my gifts, and I'm very much well aware of what my weaknesses are. And add to that, difficult circumstances and those conditions all around it now begin to magnify and manifest not only just my stress and grief, but maybe somebody else's as well. And so I want to share with you how I believe God wants us to respond when the church hurts. Again, I'm no, I am no expert in dealing with hurt in the church. And I, like most of you, have experienced hurt to various degrees. And these are the things I had to do in my own life to overcome what I would call church hurt, being hurt by other members of the body. And I'm continually amazed at the simplicity of God's word, the scriptures, and the direction he instructs and shares us, shares with us. See, the Father's heart is towards us, his children. And he's open and he's loving and he wisely instructs us in the way that we should live. In the midst of the messiness where the you know, rubber meets the road. And I think the steps that God gives us to live together in unity are actually quite simple, but not necessarily easy. And there are steps that can help us move from being reactive in conflict to becoming more proactive in guarding our hearts and our churches. In other words, one another. And the steps always do, they take us to a higher ground, I think, where we can you know, live life above strife and confusion. So if you have your notes, pen, paper, pull out your phone. You know, love is actually the, the, the framework in which the steps are built. Love is also the handrail that helps us move along from one step to another, right? So Jesus says our trademark will be love. And he says this in John chapter 13, verse 35, where he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So love now Coming from the head of the church, speaking to all of us as the body, is love has to reign supreme. This is the overshadowing thing here. So as in all things, God wants us to obey him in the power of the Holy Spirit, not to do things on our own strength, even though we try to do it all the time. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to run to Jesus and pray. You get hurt, run to Jesus and pray. First thing, write it down. Because depending on what has taken place with you, you may feel too numb. I have to say this. You may feel too numb to practice spiritual disciplines, right? Or to expect anything resembling hope or joy, right? Because you're hurt, you're crushed. Well, let me suggest that you need to pull in Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19, Jezebel is out for Elijah's head. You know, he just cast, you know, just had a big flaming barbecue with a bunch of prophets of Baal, <laughs> slaughtered them all. Woo! I love the Old Testament story. It's so warm. And now Elijah's running for his life because the queen's got a price on his head. He takes off, he runs away. He goes literally on what I would call almost a mini vacation, and he finds himself in a cave of all places. But it's in that cave where he had this extended time with God. So you see, he's going from this one extreme to another. It was there in that cave that he was able to bring his complaints to God. We read that throughout the Psalms, where the psalmist is railing at God. But not only does he pour out his heart, what does that story tell us? He listened. He listened for God's voice. And if you read the story about uh, God got Elijah here into the mess in the first place, right? Elijah's just being obedient. And it's interesting. He also gets him out. Maybe some of you need to hear that. You need to let God get you out of your mess, whatever that may be. Let him comfort you like he did Elijah. Let him strengthen you. Call out to him. Begin to pray. Maybe get away from people. Just get time to reflect. 
Get time to heal. Get time to gain perspective. And when we're in that moment where we've experienced hurt in the church, I think we have to remind ourselves that the church is not always the best when it comes to imitating Christ. And that we ourselves are sometimes not good at love. Has anybody ever dropped the ball with love? I think we all have. The first thing we need to do is go to the one who will never hurt us, the one who will never abandon us, the one who is the source of love. And God himself is, is great at not hurting us, even though people have hurt us or even though we have hurt others. So spend time with him, resting in his love. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, he said, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So when we are hurt, when we feel these feelings that are legitimate, just take some time, step away, go to him, begin to pray. Secondly, embrace the pain and decide to grow. Embrace the pain and decide to grow. Now that's easier than said than done. I, I, I know that all too well. When you realize that the worst thing you, to do is to go numb and ignore the pain, and the best thing to do is to decide that you won't give up. Then when you're at that point, I think then you're ready to see from Jesus how to grow through this and that you can do it. 2 Corinthians 4, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Light and momentary troubles. It may not feel that way, but this is Paul, the guy who's been to hell and back, is writing, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In other words, this is going to end. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, in other words, the issues that we find ourselves in, but on what is unseen, since that what is seen is temporary. In other words, you're going through something temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, there's this hope that we're coming for. The third thing we need to do is what is known as the Matthew 18 principle. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go to them and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. Oh man, I could preach on this message this passage here. But I, I, I want to keep this one really simple because I think sometimes people blow this out. Like, in other words, well, you know, Pastor, you should be wearing, like, if my mom was alive, today, she would give me grief all the time when I wear holes in my jeans and in my stuff. You know, pastors don't wear that. That's a sin. I look at my mom, I go, chapter and verse, please. Right? But again, that was her world, and, and, and how do I respond to that? And again, what, what's being pointed out here is sin. So it's not just an interpretation. It's not just a point of privilege or whatever you want to call about. It's sin. And so let's be honest, people. We sin, and we sin against one another. And when your brother or sister sees you sin, or they have sinned against you, you go to them. That's what it says right here. Go and point out their fault. In other words, it's not saying, yeah, 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 it's going, can we have a cup of coffee? I just need to tell you, you know, you said this about me to this person over here and it's like gossip because you know this is not true why did you say that that's the pointing it out that's what's going on here and often hurt can be resolved by confronting the person who hurt you and they, oh we hate that word confronting right because oh that's negative it's not negative as a matter of fact sometimes people don't even know that they have hurt you they don't even know you're going how can they not know again it's all perspective it's all perspective. But if you simply have a conversation with an individual, now again, it's not easy, but it is necessary. But we don't like confrontation because we always accuse or think that confrontation is all about yelling and neg ne negativity, but it's not. It's about having an open and honest conversation over a meal, over a coffee, maybe sometimes in a public place so that you can make sure that the tempers stay even low and keel. But you're doing your part. You're being a biblical Christian by saying, look, I, I feel that you sinned against me in this way. And if somebody pulls you aside and says that, just listen to them. Don't defend yourself. The only, somebody once said, the only thing worse 
than confronting the person is what could happen if we don't deal with the confrontation. The only thing worse than confronting the person is what can happen if we don't deal with the confrontation. Think about it in your job. Has a person in your job done something that's just sort of sideswiped you and now you're all up in arms? Go to them. Talk to them. At least address it. You may not get a changed result, but at least you're addressing it. And so we need to address issues head on, especially within the church. Jesus knows best. Let's follow his way of doing it. He is the one who's instructed us to do this in Matthew. The fourth one is forgive. And again, forgiveness is not easy. As a matter of fact, I actually think it's the hardest thing to do as a Christian. Because for me personally, I've had to learn to forgive one day at a time. You know, I, w- I would wake up on Monday and have to forgive, but then on Tuesday I would roll around, right? And I'm still wrestling with the hurt, one day at a time. I had to learn to forgive every day until I'd completely forgotten about the wrong. And it's interesting, you know, 10 years can go down the line and somebody, a random conversation all of a sudden starts bringing up all these feelings of an event that happened 10 years ago. And I'm fully aware that forgiveness is hard. Trust me, I am. But the truth is, is that forgiveness is not optional for Christians. It's not optional for Christians. Again, who do we go to? Let's go to the head of the church. Jesus, what does he say in Matthew 6, 15? I don't know. If you don't forgive men their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. I think that's pretty clear. Let's try to take that one out of context. This is the hard words to the church. These are the hard words of we identifying as believers what's expected of us. And like I said, forgiveness isn't easy. And I think it's actually very difficult to hear when we see it. Put that scripture back up on the screen again, please. Take a look at it. Like that's, that's, that's hard to read. And remember all the wrong that you and I have caused against God. And remember that you you and I have been forgiven every time we've asked. Forgiven people forgive. We need to keep short accounts. Again, Ephesians 4.26 says, Don't let the sun go down on you while you're still angry. And again, so profoundly true, but it's so elementary that we miss it all the time. And the Bible often uses images drawn from agriculture, right? Seeds, reaping, sowing, seeds of irritation and annoyance, not plucked out and dealt with on a daily daily basis, will do what? They will germinate in our hearts. And when they're not dealt with as soon as possible or as soon as we recognize them, they will take root. And each subsequent encounter with that same irritation will always be linked to someone. It will cause that root just to dig a little deeper. And the deeper it goes, the more bitter it gets. Hebrew 12, 15 says to... um, uh, A root of bitterness springs up and defiles many. And when it finally spills out or, or spits up, it defiles, it hurts us, and it also hurts everybody else around us. And this is why Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Your heart is the wellspring of life. It's the very source of who we are. And what's in our hearts will spill out of our mouth. Again, Jesus says that in Matthew 12, 34. What's in our heart is going to spill out of our mouths. And it's by our very words that we often, when you think about it according to Ephesians 4, it's by our very words that you and I, as believers, if we identify it, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Somebody once said this. If you never heal from what hurts you, you will bleed all over the people who never cut you. If you never heal, you're going to bleed. And you're bleeding on the wrong people. 
And being negative robs us of joy. It steals us of our effectiveness as, as the body of believers. And, and so often, we're oblivious to what's really going on in the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6, 12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principality and powers. There's something else that's out there. And so when conflict arises in another believer, we need to ask ourselves the question, am I wrestling with flesh and blood? And the answer in this is usually, yes, you are. And the solution is sometimes so simple that we usually miss it. And so we need to guard our hearts. We need to take stock every day. And holiness is really just truth in the inner part. In our inner heart part, we need to keep short accounts for our own heart's sake. And I'm not saying being careless, but just keep a short account. And if the root of anger or bitterness is only just the beginning in your heart, it, and it's still undetected by others, then go to God and ask Him for its removal. Because you know it's there. Maybe others don't, but you know. Ask God for His grace to be poured out on your heart so that you'll be able to deal maybe better with that particular situation or that person in, in whose strength? In the Holy Spirit's strength. Not on your own, because we can't do it. We need God's power in us. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need will abound in every good work. In other words, we can do it under God's power. And being in full submission to Him as our Lord. And if that root, maybe you have that root's already spilled out in, and began to hurt others, go and confess your sin. Sometimes we need to confess our sin to others. And even if they don't receive it, even if they don't even own their part in the conflict, keep your heart guarded and clean. You are only responsible for one heart, and that's your own. And dealing with unresolved conflict in somebody else's heart is, good, is God's job. That's not your job. You're not the Holy Spirit. That's God's job. Let him deal with it. And sometimes people harden their heart to the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. You're never going to get that apology that you think you deserve. So you're going to sit there? Or do you move on? Get rid of the weeds. Get rid of the bitterness. Get rid of the hurt. Move on and allow the Holy Spirit to transform you and to grow you. Because there are people in the body that want to have a relationship with you. The Spirit calls us to manifest His fruit. That's what we get when we read the Scripture. It's not, 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 not the works of the flesh. We, we need to begin to evaluate the fruit in our own lives. And the fruit, uh, the fruit gives us a way as believers. You know, if you've confessed your part in a conflict and others refuse to do the same, that's fine. Just give them grace. Just give them grace. Give, pray for them. And if necessary, distance yourself from the overflow of their bitter roots. Sometimes you know that there are people who are bitter. Just That's all right. Allow God to heal their hearts. You're not, again, you're not the doctor. Allow God to do it. Again, Romans 12, 18, if at all possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everybody. But always be alert to the seeds that you allow in your heart. They all eventually produce fruit of one kind or another. Do you remember what the fruit is? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Anybody got a short supply of spiritual fruit in their life? Y'all good? Everybody's good on love? Everybody's, uh, no, we, there's, all, there's always something lacking there that we need. So invite the Spirit to show you if there are any bitter seeds that have begun to take root in your heart and look to be the fruit of the Spirit to other people. Find somebody to talk to. This is easy. And maybe you're one of the lucky ones and you have someone around who will listen to you as you share your heart. They'll just shut up and listen. I love loyal friends. I really do. I really like friends who have my back no matter what comes my way, but in the midst of hurt, remember there are, there are always those who will have your back. There are. Confide in these people privately. Not as a point of gossip, but as a point of confidence and help. You you just, sometimes you just need to talk through this stuff. 
And you need to find somebody that you trust that you can just really share your heart with. And maybe depending on the grief you're experiencing, maybe, maybe you've been really like hurt. And, and again, I can go in all different descriptions. Well, maybe you need to seek therapy, and I'm not kidding. Get a counselor to help you work through the, what you're feeling and, and how you can learn from your situation. And I, again, I, you will and should make progress. You should feel better as you do this. And you shouldn't have to worry about your counselor betraying you or leaving you, right? Talk to somebody. Number six, resolve your past. Again, it's all perspective. When you're addressing the hurts committed against you, it may be also a good time to address those that you have hurt. Maybe there are people within the community. Maybe there are people within the church that you have hurt, and you need to get it cleared up. It's perspective, right? Again, it was Jesus who said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Review your past. Has there been anybody that you've heard? Take the time. Get it cleared up. And finally, well, not finally, sorry. Number seven, make the best basic commitment to always act in love. That's where we started at the beginning. I'm committed to helping the church be more loving. I want to be more like what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 4-7. to Love is patient, kind, does not envy, right? It's, it's not a wedding piece. It's a church piece. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. And I need to act in complete love moving forward. And finally, repeat the process. If you've been hurt by somebody within the church, remember that you will probably get hurt again. Again, we are human, we make mistakes. When hurt happens, don't run or flee from the church. When hurt happens, don't do that, but simply walk through the above process that I shared with you and repeat the steps again. And one day soon, there will be a place of no more hurt, but until then, however, let's keep committed to moving forward in forgiveness. Let me remind you that the body cannot extend healing to its parts unless those parts tell the body that they're hurting. So whether it's cut or a broken bone or a deadly virus or cancer or a germ, unless the parts of the body tells the rest of the body that they are hurting, that body can't heal. Tell someone. Yeah, I wrote my ankle yesterday on a walk. It was telling me I was hurting. Now, I didn't have to tell anybody because they actually saw my ankle go out from underneath me. So the people around me said, well, this is what we need to do. Let's put ice on it. Let's elevate it. 20 minutes off, 20 minutes on. Elevate your leg. Take some Tylenol or Advil, anti-swell. So all of a sudden now, there's healing taking place. Ask somebody to pray with you. Why? Because Scripture tells us that by His wounds, we are healed. Maybe you're here, you carried through those doors, wounds of abuse, wounds of emotional, verbal, physical. You've been abused. Like within the church at large, in general, universal. People are raped. People are sexually assaulted. I venture to say most of us have some sort of relational wounds. But remember, but by his wounds, we are healed. Maybe your sexuality makes no sense whatsoever to you. Maybe you're struggling with sexual issues, infidelity issues, pornography, addictions of all sorts. Your marriage is falling apart. By his wounds, we are healed. You're hurt by a church. You come to Seoul to find refuge and repair. And maybe you even wonder if God is there. By his wounds, we are healed. You see how it keeps going back to the head of the church. I want us to transition at this time towards the Lord's table. You pass the, the little 
wafer and cup. I always struggle trying to get these things off. I'm waiting for us to do communion again normally. Sorry. I just miss it. I miss seeing the lines and having people feed, you know, present to me the elements. That's just me. Some of you introverts really love the communion cup and say, please don't change. I get it. I get it. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I just want to just say something. Like we, we practice what is called an open communion table. But if you have no clue what you're doing, I, I just want to invite you, just, just take this thing and just put it down. Don't worry about it. Because if you don't really understand it, there's no point doing it because then it's just ritual and ritual is meaningless. So that, that's just my, my little word of advice. If you're going, well, you know, people are going to look at me. What I'm gonna do. We don't really care. We are so happy you're here. We just want you to be in the moment and experience. And you can turn around and watch people and see what's going on. That's what we want to see you do. But for those who identify as followers of Christ, and you know the meaning of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, then you're invited to the table. You're invited to participate. If your children are here in the room with you, you as a parent... It's up to you as to how you want to teach your, your son or your daughter uh, this in communion. And we will do it in, in, in soul kids, but you're the parent. You're the primary teacher, so please take that time to do it. So we're going to transition to the table, and we're going to go into a song. And I just want you to listen to the words. responsive reading with me today. I know you have your masks on. I'll be saying a sentence, and your response will be this. In your mercy, heal us, O God. Now, can you say it with me first before we get started? And the one thing I'm looking for is no monotone. You have, in your mercy, heal us, O God. It doesn't fly. Because I think that there's passion here. So you come and you're hurt. You're part of the body. It's time for healing. 
That's what this place is for. Emotional, physical, spiritual. You can't say this without feeling it. On three, can you say it with me? One, two, three. In your mercy, heal us, God. Father, I pray that you'd fill our prayers with power. I pray that you'd fill our hearts with faith. And we pray for every place in our world where wounds of war and strife leave their mark. We pray for every scar of hatred and hurt that remains in our nation. We pray for every person who is sick in body, mind, or spirit. We pray for every person who has been hurt by other members of the body, the church. Father, let your healing flow among us and within us. Jesus came to seek the lost. He came to heal the sick, to free the captive, to restore the broken. And so what we do as we gather together now is that we give thanks for his unfailing love, the Lord God who has made all things new. And so Jesus, we just thank you for coming to us, for becoming one of us, for carrying our shame, our pain, for opening the way to life. And we lift up our hearts today to honor you and to give you thanks. And as part of your work of healing, God, you have left us this sacrament. You've left us this time to remind us of love and to invite us into your grace and to extend to us renewal. And so today we remember at his last meal with his friends, even the one who betrayed him, before he died, he took the bread, he blessed, and he broke it. And then he shared it. And he said, this is my body. Eat it and do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread together to remember. And after he had eaten, he took the wine, and he blessed it. And then he shared it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's participate. And so we eat and drink with thanks, and we remember the sacrifice of which Jesus has made us whole. You got hurt? Go to Jesus. Follow those seven steps and keep repeating them over and over again. And be part of the body. Give it another chance. Again, imperfect people gathering together. Just give us another chance. How many of us want a second chance? Why don't you stand with me? able-bodied and you can help us if you could stack the chairs eight high on your way out that'd be great I'd really appreciate it let me just pray father we acknowledge that we're in this desperate need of you we acknowledge that brokenness is where we was <laughs> where we live but yet God we want to live in a sense of being disarmed of our pride because we all have it all of us have it and even our false senses of humility are still faulty presentations of pride. So uproot the mess and remove the clutter that's in all of our lives. Break us, God. Replant life. And then begin the process of molding us into what you want us to be. And so as we go from this place, please, deep within our beings, remind us that you can take a mess, you can take a hurt, 
and you can make something beautiful. I pray that soul will continue to be a safe place and a place of healing for all. In Jesus' name, amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing, those receiving blessing did likewise. Here it is. May the love which overcomes all differences, which heals all wounds, which puts to flight all fears, which reconciles all who are separated, may that love be in us and among us now and always. And may you go in his name. May you go in his love and may you go with his blessing today to now go and live the church. Be blessed and we'll see you next week.